0: Is the Bible a Christian book? Answer seems pretty obvious. Somebody last Sunday stopped me before I left and said, I thought that was the whole point. Well, I think it is the whole point that the Bible is a Christian book. And yet we hear from one popular preacher these days that we need to distance ourselves from the Older Testament Maybe coming from more the leftist side of things, embarrassed by some things in the Older Testament. So uh, we want to distance ourselves from that, he's saying, I think wrongly. Or from other camps, maybe on the right side of things, there are those, even those I would have considered uh, mentors and highly esteemed at certain points in my life, who say, the whole Bible is not Christian scripture. Um, and Christ-centered preaching is frowned upon so much so that if you're into Christ-centered preaching, uh, you're facing the judgment to come. Controversial, right? That gets my attention. Is the Bible a Christian book? Well, I, I would suggest that it is a Christian book, and it's very important. And we just finished our study of Second Corinthians 3. And 2 Corinthians 3 talks about how when we uh, come to know Christ by faith, the veil is taken off of our eyes, and now we can read the Bible as it's meant to be read, even the Old Testament as it's meant to be read. With the veil taken off, we can see it from the lenses of a Christ-centered perspective. And so I thought it would be good for us as we were studying 2 Corinthians. We'll resume, but I thought it would be good for us to pause in light of the controversy, uh, in light of me wanting to help you to think about these things, Um, I thought it would be good to pause and talk about why should we have a Christ-centered perspective when we read the Bible? Uh, Why should we have a Christ-centered interpretation? If you want to use the fancy word, the word for interpretation is hermeneutic. Um, why should we want Christ-centered teaching? Why should we want Christ-centered preaching? Why is it good and right? And so this is a bit of an extension, an unpacking of the implications of 2 Corinthians uh, 3. Let's call it a long application with lots of Bible verses. Okay? So we'll get back to 2 Corinthians, Lord willing, next week. But this morning, I want to continue with this top ten list. Ten reasons why Christians should approach the Bible from a Christ-centered perspective. We began looking at these last week. I'll Briefly review, uh, and then we'll cover some new territory. I'm going to take my watch off as a reminder to go fast. Um, One little boy said to his parents, uh, Daddy, Mommy, why does the pastor take his watch off and set it on the pulpit every time? And the parents said, for absolutely no reason at all. (laughs) Get it? He doesn't pay attention to it anyway, so why does he do it? No reason at all. Anyway, I'm going to keep my day job, I hope. First reason why we should read the Bible and understand the Bible from a Christ-centered perspective is because to do otherwise reflects unbelief to do otherwise reflects unbelief. This is 2 Corinthians 3, again, by way of review. There's a veil over an unbeliever's eyes, and when the veil is removed, then we see things the way they're meant to be seen. Now we can see that uh, the the Old Testament sacrifices and the priests and all of the other things in tabernacle and temple, uh, I'm using those as examples, they're not ends in and of themselves. It's part of a greater narrative, a greater story, and believers see and have the aha moment, if you will those were types and shadows and the substance belongs to christ it was all part of a plan that's unfolding so let's not read the bible like unbelievers let's read the bible like believers second corinthians chapter 3 verse 14 only through christ is it the veil taken away and so that's by way of review for from last time number two a second reason we would want to read the bible from a christ-centered perspective is because we are christians we are christians Christians read the Bible like Christians. Hello, right? Captain Obvious. Uh, we're Christians. But last time, and again ever so briefly, we pointed out the obvious in the Old Testament, the Messiah, the Anointed One. That's just the Hebrew word for, for Messiah. We get to the New Testament, Christ, the Anointed One. Same concept, same reality, just two different words because we're talking about two different languages. That's why the Old Testament that was written in Greek, the Septuagint, translates it Christos or something along those lines. It uses the same exact word. So the whole Bible is about Messiah. Psalm 2, anticipating it uses the word in the Septuagint. Christos, sound familiar? Christ. And the dots are connected in the book of Acts. The, the preachers are showing the, the, the new... Uh, in light of Christ's ascension, that he is the one who fulfills the anticipation, the the messianic anticipation is realized in Messiah Christ. We read the Bible like Christians because that's how it's meant to be read ultimately. Third reason we would want to read the Bible in a Christ-centered perspective is because of the apostles or it's apostolic. That's how they did it. So I'm not an apostle, I don't claim to be an apostle, but the apostle Paul, Christians believe, wrote under inspiration, the guidance of God. And so when he wrote Romans 5, he knew what he was talking about. He wasn't just making things up. And in Romans chapter five, he sees all of human history through the lenses of the two Adams. Okay, so in First Corinthians fifteen, it talks about the last Adam being Christ. Cross-reference that with Romans chapter five. The Apostle Paul looks at, views, interprets all of human history through two representatives. Ultimately, doesn't mean there weren't a lot of uh, other. There aren't other um, contrasts. It doesn't mean there aren't lots of. of there's a big cast of characters as it unfolds, right? There's all kinds of nuances and ins and outs and all kinds of... There's a supporting cast. That's what I was looking for. But ultimately, the players are Adam number one and Adam number two. And that's why we need, we're all united to Adam number one. And we're united to Adam number two by faith in him. So if that's the case, then I, I'm going to view all of human history, even Genesis, post-fall, pre-fall through those lenses and then we have the promise in Genesis chapter 3 so it's not a surprise uh, for us to read the Bible this way it's it's the two Adam lenses if you will number four I'm dying to talk more about number three by the way but number four Fourth reason to be Christ-centered in your understanding would be, and I dropped some big Latin on you um, because I'm such a Latin scholar. No, it's because I like R.C. Sproul and he uses Latin. So uh, the pactum, the pactum, think of pact or agreement. Okay, in theology, uh, the pactum is shorthand for the pactum salutis. The pact or agreement of salvation. Okay, this is Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, we have before time begins, before the foundation of the world, and we have the Father, we have the Son, and we have the Holy Spirit. And there is a plan, there is a purpose to redeem sinners. So even before the foundation of the world, there was an agreement uh, between the, the, the triune Godhead, if you will. They're together in agreeing to do this. Okay, so the Father has the plan. He sends the Son. The Son agrees to come and do the work. The Son accomplishes redemption, and the Holy Spirit applies it to those folks. Okay, I would love to go back to Ephesians one. We will in just a little bit for another reason, but this is review. But Ephesians one. So I'm going to read Genesis one, Genesis one one, with something in mind. There was something before the something. There was a plan and purpose. Even before anything happened. So I'm not going to pretend like there wasn't a plan and purpose. And when I'm reading through Exodus or Numbers or Leviticus or Deuteronomy or whatever, I'm not going to pretend and go la, 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 blinders, 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 like there's no plan and purpose. I'm going to read it like there is a plan and a purpose and there's an unfolding drama of redemption. I'm reading it like a Christian from a Christ centered perspective. You with me so far? You need an illustration to kind of lighten things up or can I keep going? I'm I'm just going to keep going if you don't mind. Thank you. For those of you who wanted an illustration, sorry. Um, Number five, the progress of revelation. The progress of revelation. We've already been talking about this essentially. Last week we went to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, how God has revealed himself in all these different ways. But ultimately, climactically, in these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son, And then the book of Hebrews unpacks how all of the types and shadows and the priests and the sacrifices and all of these other realities are ultimately fulfilled and designed to find fulfillment in Christ. Progressive revelation. What we don't want to do is pretend like there's regressive revelation. We, We don't want to pretend like that reality is not a reality. We want to embrace that reality and say, Ah, this is amazing. This is awesome. God's great drama unfolding. I see it for what it is, for what it was designed to be by the triune God. No wonder the Apostle Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father. He's praising him for this great reality centering on his Son. Not a perfect illustration, but I think of... See, for those of you who needed an illustration, I'm going to give you one. Um... Think about, you know, a Persian rug, and the Persian rug upside down looks like a bit of a catastrophe, but when you turn it over, you say, oh, there's a masterpiece. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not calling the Old Testament world a catastrophe, Um, but maybe from our perspective, if we don't understand and we haven't seen it, then we don't understand the beauty of the whole thing. But once we see it, we can't unsee it. We know what beauty there is. I don't want us to unsee it. I'm suggesting you don't don't pretend like you can unsee it. You can't unsee it. Let's embrace it and see it for what it's meant to be seen as. Here's an example. John chapter 2. Jesus says, If you destroy this temple, three days I'll raise it up again. What's he talking about? The unbelievers think he's talking about the temple in Jerusalem. But he is talking about the temple which is his body. Progressive revelation. Type, shadow. What's more real, the type or the shadow or the substance? It's Christ. He's the real temple, by the way. The ultimate. The other was designed to point to him in an imperfect way. It's him. Maybe one other example. Well, don't go there. Colossians 2.17 we looked at last time. I might, I'm doing okay on time. This is wonderful. Um, progressive revelation. Here's another one. Listen to these words and you tell me if this comes from the New Testament or the Old Testament. Quote, Out of Egypt I called my son. Old Testament or New Testament? Trick question, right? I love trick questions, unless I'm being tricked. If I read a little bit more, you'll be able to tell me where it comes from. They remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. New Testament or Old Testament. I'm quoting the new, Matthew chapter 2, verse 15. Matthew two fifteen, Out of Egypt I've called my son. Who is it talking about in Matthew chapter 2? It's talking about Jesus, right? It's talking about Jesus. There's fulfillment. But if you look at the original text in the Old Testament, out of Egypt I've called my son, it's talking about the nation of Israel being delivered out of Egypt. Israel is sometimes referred to as God's son, but they're not the faithful son. Progressive revelation would say God's ultimate son, the son, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm looking at types and shadows but really we're looking for ultimate deliverance in the ultimate and faithful son by the way now I can even read about that other deliverance with a view toward Christ I can sit there and watch that what's that movie called again that we watched not too long ago Gods and Kings about the exodus this isn't a movie promotion if you don't like movies just tune me out Um, it doesn't get all the details right but I do like the 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 parting of the Red Sea scene. Anyway, I'm talking to my kids about it. We're watching it, and we're, we're watching the movie. Isn't it amazing that God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt? He called his son. Isn't it amazing that given the fact that we have an eternal plan before the foundation of the world that centers on Christ, that that was meant to be a type and a shadow of the ultimate deliverance, the faithful son. Huh. I'm reading the Bible from a Christ centered perspective. I'm not denying that types and shadows were real, but I'm saying they're designed to serve a greater purpose. Jesus is amazing. I hope you're like one tenth of one percent as excited about this kind of stuff as I am. We're not looking for hidden meanings. We're looking for what was there all along that might not have been very clear, the Apostle Peter would tell us in First Peter. But we now have the blinders off and we can see it and we have the enlightenment, if you will. Wow. Number six, there's one divine author. There's one divine author. This is still review. There's one divine author. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. We looked at it last time. We won't look at it again this morning. I promise I'll have you turn to a passage pretty soon, a new passage. But Christians believe there's one divine author. Yes, he guides and directs through personalities. 2 Peter talks about that. That's why Paul's grammar is different than Peter's grammar, which is different than John's grammar, for example. But somehow God is behind the whole thing, orchestrating. And if we believe that to be true, that God has written all of it ultimately, inspiration, if He's written all of it ultimately, this God who has a plan and has a purpose, that centers ultimately on His Son, it would make a lot of sense to conclude that it's not just miscellaneous stories with with no real cohesion that goes together, looking like a disastrous underbelly of a Persian rug. No, there's one divine author building the masterpiece, and he has one son, and it's Jesus, and he's going to have him be exalted ultimately through it all. Ready for some new stuff? I'm ready for new stuff. Let's turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, if you're not there already. Ephesians 1 gets double duty. Why is this controversial? I hope, Lord willing, to talk about that a little bit at the end. Why is this controversial? I think for most Christians, it's not controversial. It's just your instinct to go, hello. But in the the academy that produces pastors, that influences congregations, it's controversial for different reasons. I didn't give you number seven, did I? Seventh reason why we want to read, understand, teach, preach the Bible in a Christ-centered way as Christians is because we are not Arminians. Because we are not Arminians. Okay, I'm purposely trying to be edgy about this a little bit. Jacobus Arminius. Just after the Reformation, Dutch theologian. Very, 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 very influential. I think most people are Arminians until they read the Bible and are confronted with Ephesians chapter 1. I know I was an Arminian. It's default mode. But he would have denied the ultimate sovereignty of God where God has all power and he has a divine purpose that existed before the foundation of the world. And that that everything works according to that divine purpose. Everything. Okay? He wouldn't have been a big fan of words like predestination like Ephesians 1 uses. We don't know if it's actually going to happen or not. Maybe it won't unfold that way. Might just have bad luck. Up to chance. Okay? Here's what I'm getting at in Ephesians 1. We're going to read it. If there is a Purpose before time begins, and it is absolutely for sure going to happen. Paul is dropping words like predestined. I know that's not popular in Christian circles, but it's in the Bible. This is going to happen, and it is going to center on my son. Let's not read the Bible and pretend like we're Arminians. Let's not read the Bible and pretend like there's no predestination, there's no purpose that's going to center on Jesus. Let's not do that. We're not Arminians. I mean, some of us might be. And you're welcome here. Glad you're here. Let's see. Ephesians 1, verse... Oh, where should we even start? I want to read the whole thing. I have 3 to 23 written down, but we will never get out of here. Oh, how about just selectively, we bless God for this, this is good, this is great. And then in verse 4, even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Then how about at the end of verse 5, according to the purpose of his will. Oh, that's decree terminology, purpose terminology. Pre-temporal, before time begins, purpose terminology. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, or excuse me, of our trespasses. I want to keep going, but for the sake of time, verse 9 then says, according to His purpose, that's decretive terminology, which He set forth in Christ. See, the purpose is in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time. And then verse 11 is uh, such a linchpin in this whole thing. In Him we have obtained an inheritance. Here we go. Having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, there's our purpose word again, who works... Two really important words, all things according to the counsel of his will. We just went across like 30 drop the mic moments, if not 300,000. This God, the pretemporal purposing of God, the counsel of His will, then in time works all things, all things, all things according to the counsel of His will. Of course I'm going to think that there is a plan and a purpose unfolding throughout all of history because this God who predestines and, and has this plan and purpose according to the counsel of His will works all things according to the counsel of His will. I know lots of people who say they're not Arminians, but they're against Christ-centered preaching, and I think they are Arminians when it comes to how they're approaching the Bible. Does that make sense at all? We're not Arminians. Now, we've inherited maybe uh, hermeneutics, We've we've, in, we've inherited the lenses through which we're taught to interpret the Scripture. We've inherited a lot of that from Arminians. And so it's no wonder that we look at this Christ-centered thing and we're kind of suspicious. Let's not do that. I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to help you as an Omaha Bible Church member uh, to be hopefully refreshed and hopefully equipped I'm trying to help you if you're not an Omaha Bible Church member to hopefully help you be refreshed and equipped I'm trying to help you if you go somewhere else because your job takes you somewhere else and you're trying to find a good church and and I would suggest to you you'd want to talk about Christ-centered preaching and reading and teaching of the Bible might not be controversial here but it really is Let's go now to number eight. An eighth reason for Christ-centeredness in our understanding. And that's because Jesus thought this way. Luke chapter 24. Jesus thought this way. I know some of you are thinking, it's about time you got to Luke 24. Some of you are thinking, if I were preaching your sermon, I would have started with Luke 24. Luke 24 is such a slam dunk. I agree with you. Number eight. Jesus thought this way. Luke 24 Isn't it interesting? Christ was Christ-centered. Okay, think with me about this. You know, again, I went to public school, but Christ was Christ-centered. Therefore, Christians, Christians should be Christ-centered. Man, amazing. Luke 24, the road to Emmaus. Verse 24 says... Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but Him they did not see. This is resurrection, post-resurrection. Verse 25, And He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. How would you like to be called stupid by Jesus? Oh, we don't say stupid, sorry, foolish. (laughs) Oh, foolish ones, and slow to heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ, the Messiah, right, should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning Himself. Discipled by Jesus in Christ-centered hermeneutics. And it's amazing the lengths people go to to try to suggest and teach that Luke 24 doesn't say what it says. I mean, I want to be known for certain things in my life. I know I'm going to be known for things that aren't good because I'm a sinner. Hello, my name is Pat. And you say, Hello, hi, Pat. Okay, (laughs) Right? We're all sinners. I'm going to be known for Failures. But one thing I hope I'm not known for as a Christian teacher and pastor is being against Christ-centered anything. I hope you're not known for that either. Christians for, since there have been Christians, have been understanding Luke 24, generally speaking, for the way it sounds. He discipled them for two hours or however long it was. I don't know how long it took to walk seven miles or whatever it was. Showing them in the Old Testament that ultimately, though there are other castes of characters, it's about Him. It's about Him. John 5.46 For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. This is one of the reasons why at Omaha Bible Church we love the, for for children, we have in our bookstore the Big Picture Story Bible. It's not a real Bible. It's a children's Bible. But I've bought it for adults before. Big Picture Story Bible. It's not perfect because it's not an actual Bible, so I'm speaking nonsense. How can you call the Big Picture Story Bible a Bible if it's not a Bible? But it's a children's Bible, right? It's a picture book. I digress. But what it does, the authors seek to do is to show that there is a purpose, a pre-temporal, if we want to use the big word again, purpose of God that unfolds throughout time, Old and New Testament, and it centers upon Christ. So it's not just a bunch of hero stories about all how wonderful this person was and that man and that woman was, and it misses the whole point because it focuses on the cast of supporting characters instead of the one who is the star. Number nine, a ninth reason for a Christ-centered perspective would be spiritual transformation depends upon it. Spiritual transformation depends upon it. This is Second Corinthians 3. We've seen it already in Second Corinthians 3. But now that I'm... We're going to see it again in just a second if you want to turn there. I'm a Christian... I want to grow spiritually. I want life transformation. I don't want to be the same as the day I believed. I'm thankful the day I believed Christ's righteousness was credited to me. I was no longer an enemy of God. I was given all of the benefits that would be true for me in Christ. My sins were forgiven, reconciled to God, justified by faith in Christ. Awesome but I want to grow spiritually. To use a word we like to use in, in the church, I want to be sanctified. I, I don't want to stay the same. I want to think differently. I want to live differently. Um, transformed. Well, Second Corinthians 3.18 says, and we all, so this is all Christians, not just the super Christians, as if there were any, and we all with unveiled face, all Christians have an unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. Okay, the gospel glory, the greater glory, not the glory like Moses had because of the law, this is the greater gospel glory in the context that we saw that a couple of weeks ago, are being transformed. We all okay, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is, this, who is the Spirit. So that's why we don't say, now that you've got the gospel, move on. Now that you know that Jesus died for your sins and was raised again from the dead, you can forget about Jesus till later. No, we, we stay there. We, we, we stay there. We, we continue to see that it's ultimately about him. And we find ourselves transformed to, to do what older Christians did years ago. They would say, you have God's word and it shows you your guilt, right? And you have God's word and then you see you need God's grace in Christ, but now that you have God's grace, you don't move on. you still centering on Christ and His Word. Now want to live out of gratitude. Christ died for my sins. He's done these great things. That's why Ephesians gives us practical things to do in light of 1, 2, and 3. The grand, awesome, majestic, Christ-exalting section. Out of gratitude. Transformation happens in light of the Gospel. 1. Extra-biblical author in our day, who's really helped the church in this way, uh, is that kind gentleman named Jerry Bridges, especially in his later writings. His later writings, he would even suggest that in my earlier writings, I didn't quite have this figured out. Life transformation happens not by moving past Jesus, but seeing Jesus for the great Savior who he is. I I say this all the time, and I'll say it again. It's one reason why I think the Lord said, do this in remembrance of me until I come again. We eat and drink, and before we even put the keys in the Honda Odyssey, we've forgotten, or whatever it is. Remember, it's about me. It's about me. It's about me. It's about me. Oh, life transformation happens when we see the greatness and the grandeur and the wonderful promises of Jesus. We're on number 10. There is a God, and He is kind and gracious. And this is further evidence of that. Number 10, He is preeminent. He is preeminent. He's the best, He's the greater, He has no rivals. If Christ is preeminent because of what he's done and because of who he is, let's read our Bibles as if he is preeminent. And let's not pretend like he's not preeminent when we're reading certain parts of the Bible. Colossians 1.18 says, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And I want to read Colossians 1, 15 to 20. That was just one eighteen, But we're not going to do it because of time. But the whole thing is just about, He, he has no rivals. He's the greatest. He's the perfect Savior. He's number one. He's at the top. There, there's no one who compares to Him. And you have your sins forgiven in Him. You have redemption in Him. It's so grand about the sufficiency of Christ that in everything, He might be preeminent. And if I can use a little sarcasm, it's not that in everything except your reading of the Old Testament He might be preeminent. That's crazy. That in everything He might be preeminent because He is. That's why we trust in Him. That's why He's sufficient. I love what Dennis Johnson had to say about Colossians 1 and Philippians, or excuse me, in Ephesians, regarding this. No text of Scripture is adequately understood, explained, or applied unless it is somehow related to God's cosmic plan. That plan centers upon Christ. If you're wondering what all this is called, you want a label for this? Labels are helpful, right? And labels are bad. They have their place. I'm going to use a label. If you want to have a label for what I'm trying to do in 2 Corinthians and what I'm trying to do in Ecclesiastes and what Pastor Mike Holloway is trying to do in Isaiah, we're on the same page in this. We're trying to do what is labeled redemptive historical preaching. Redemptive historical preaching. You say, I thought we were trying to do expository preaching. We are. And I'm suggesting that the best kind of expository preaching is redemptive historical preaching. Pre-temporal purpose and plan of redemption by the triune God focusing on His Son. And it is unfolding in anticipation in the old, yes, through types and shadows, fulfillment in the new, ultimately in Christ. And no matter where I am in the Bible, I'm remembering that. I'm not pretending like I'm an Arminian. I'm not um, trying to do post-enlightenment naturalist hermeneutics. I'm remembering there's one divine author. Unfolding throughout history is this reality of redemption and it centers on Christ. Okay. We doing okay? By the way, this will ruin ruin you for life, because you're going to have an appetite for it, right? You're going to say, I, "I need that." Thank you for giving me all of that historic information and telling me all this about parsing verbs. But would you please tell me how this relates to Jesus, because he's preeminent in everything. I, I, I want you to be that guy and that gal. I heard a pastor one time at a, at a conference and smart, educated, well-dressed. I think people wanted his autographs after his talk. And I'm not even kidding. It was in a different country. And it was something about overcoming temptation or something like that from the life of David. He had a wonderful PowerPoint. If you're into that, um, people were in awe. Overcoming temptation from the life of David. I wonder how that's working out. You know what he didn't mention? He didn't mention Christ. I want you in the line to talk to that guy, but not for an autograph. Show us Christ. That's where our hope is. The veil's gone. Let's not pretend like we have veils. Okay, some reasons for pushback. Just ever so quickly and we'll wrap up with this and then every good sermon should end with a Spurgeon quote, so I have one. Um, One one reason there's pushback from from certain angles, there's pushback because people, people want their Old Testament heroes back. They, they, they thought the whole Old Testament was all about the, the, the good and the bad and the ugly, um, and, and these are my good good guys, and it's all about dare to be a Daniel, which is true. You should dare to be a Daniel and be brave and believe in the sovereignty of God and all that kind of stuff, but he was a sinner too. Overcoming sexual temptation from the life of David, cosmic fail, but anyway, give, a, give, a, give us our, our heroes back. I I was taught, because of the children's storybook Bibles that I read, that it was all about the historical heroes. By the way, when they are described as heroes in the book of Hebrews, they're heroic because they believed. So we should follow their example and believe in God for righteousness. They're not heroes because they were so awesome. Or sawsome is the word I like to use. That's one area of pushback. If it's ultimately supporting cast members who did important things at times, but it's ultimately about Christ, that might rub me the wrong way, and it might spoil some of my sermons. Another reason for pushback would would be because it doesn't allow, excuse me, it doesn't allow for a return to the types and shadows. it doesn't allow for regressive so if we have these types and shadows fulfilled in Christ but well, what if my theology says the types and shadows really are where the, the front row seats are I don't know what else I want to say about that how controversial I want to be If Jesus is the temple and the substance belongs to Christ, then I'm not going to send my donations for the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. I'm not funding types and shadows. The substance belongs to Christ. See, this is why this is dangerous to know these things. These are are turf wars over these issues. It's reasons why one of the reasons why Christians would be against Christ-centeredness, which seems so bizarre, but it messes with your theology if it's ultimately all about Him. Some say to interpret the Bible from a Christ-centered. Here's another objection: it's anti-Semitic. It's anti-Jewish. I'll be the first to say we shouldn't be anti-Semitic because I've heard that I'm part Jew. So. (laughs) No excuse for some kind of racist anti-Semitism. That would be wrong and sinful. Let's be clear. But the idea is, well, the Old Testament was the Jews' book and the New Testament is the Christians' book. I'm suggesting to you what Christians have been saying since there have been Christians that the whole thing is our book. And the church is made up of Jews and Gentiles. Welcome, Jews. I'd like to introduce you to the Messiah. Welcome, Gentiles. I would like to introduce you to the Messiah, Deliverer, Great King. And one text that is important about this is in Ephesians chapter 2. The dividing wall between Jew and Gentile has been broken down in Christ. Christ. So don't have a theology that wants to rebuild the wall that Jesus tore down. Hmm. And then finally, it's so interesting. How about these words? And we'll end. In Ephesians chapter 3, I was referencing Ephesians chapter 2, but Ephesians chapter 3, listen carefully to this. And to bring to light for everyone what is the, how about this, the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. How about this? This is Ephesians chapter 3 verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. The eternal purpose realized... Made reality in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The eternal purpose has come to fruition. So we have progressive revelation, finding fulfillment in Christ. He's the end game. He's the substance. The eternal purpose has been fulfilled in Christ and it is for Gentiles and it is for Jews. There's not an additional purpose. The eternal purpose. He even said it's in the church. Okay, Spurgeon quote. Ha ha, right? Here we go. With one minute to spare. Amazing. This is about a hundred or so years ago. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, your favorite Baptist and mine. Okay? The Spirit of God bears no witness to Christless sermons. Leave Jesus out of your preaching and the Holy Spirit will never come upon you. Why should He? Has he not come on purpose that he may testify of Christ? Did not Jesus say, He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you? Yes, the subject was Christ and nothing but Christ. And such is the teaching which the Spirit of God will own. Be it ours never to wander from the central point. May we determine to know nothing among you but Christ and His cross. Jesus said, I'll send you another helper and He will glorify, Jesus says, me. True Spirit-anointed preaching has got to be Christ-centered because the Spirit has one job in preaching, I should say, to exalt the Son. Hope it's helpful. If it's controversial, um, let's talk. But Christ is preeminent, so let's let him have preeminence at Omaha Bible Church and in our lives. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for Omaha Bible Church. As imperfect as we are with all of our struggles, we are great, great, greatly thankful to not have veils over our spiritual eyes, our hearts, to see that Christ is the sum and substance. He's central. He's the fulfillment of the eternal purpose. And we love to know him, and we love for others to know him. By your grace, draw men and women and boys and girls through the proclamation of the gospel, so that they might join us in our great, great, great response of gratitude unto you. In Jesus' name, amen.